how is my sound? Can everybody hear me? Awesome. Well, if you'd be nice enough to pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this incredible day. Thank you for these people that are here. Pray that you would open our minds and hearts and eyes and ears to what you have for us. As my words would conform to yours, I pray that they would be taken to heart. And should they depart in any way, I pray that they would be quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace City. This is a first for me. This is the closest I've ever come to what the old guard Christians call open-air preaching. So this should be interesting. I want to commend you all for braving the possibility of lousy weather and being here with us today, although it seems to be pretty good now. For anybody who might not know me, my name is John Crooks, and I've been at Grace City for 12 years this June. My wife, Lil Gurney, is on staff here, and I've been involved with the Shape Workshop here, as well as with the Growing in Grace program. And outside this church, I'm also one of the teaching directors with Community Bible Study. So last Sunday was Easter, and it was our first day physically together in a few months. We've been doing a series called The Waymaker, and our passage for today is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. If you brought a Bible with you, I would invite you to turn there. And I can't think of a more appropriate text for the week after Resurrection Sunday. And the resurrection that we celebrate is the foundation, the cornerstone of our faith. This is where it either all comes together or it unravels like a cheap sweater. The tomb of Jesus is empty. That is the difference that makes the difference. You can go down the list of all the gurus and high holy people of all the world religions, Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, Zoroastra, Sun Young Moon, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, L. Ron Hubbard, without, without exception, they are all dead. They are in their tombs and they are not coming back. And by contrast, Jesus is alive. We worship a living Savior. Now, our text again is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And I want to take a deep dive into what Paul is communicating here, but we need some context. The Corinthian church to whom Paul wrote this letter was in many ways a disaster. They were like the bad news bears, the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And they had a laundry list of problems and issues. For starters, they had an incestuous relationship in the church. Believers were going to court against one another, much to the amusement of the non-believers in their midst. There was controversy over food, sacrifice to idols, and confusion about male and female roles in the church. Classism brought issues between the rich and the poor. People were getting drunk on the communion wine. There was confusion about speaking in tongues, and there were competing allegiances to different teachers who created factions and cliques in the church. And that's just what we know about. But to be called a Corinthian in that culture was an insult. It referred to a morally degenerate person. And Paul's letter is a primer on dealing with issues in the church. And as frustrated as Paul clearly was, he loved these people. He thanked God for them and desperately wanted them to rise to their potential as a vibrant, healthy, unified church. When you read 1 Corinthians and you see all the issues Paul confronted them on, it's as if he's saying, stop, this is not what you're made for. And 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most vivid pictures we ever see about the reality of eternal life. Paul was telling 
these believers what Jesus had made possible for them, how Jesus was the way maker. In our passage today, he lays out the foundational truths. Now, what Paul's talking about here are what we would call first-order doctrines. Now, we in the church may have different preferences. I may like contemporary music. You may prefer traditional hymns. That's not a problem. And there are many disputable matters on which we can agree to disagree. But by contrast, Paul is identifying the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. The virgin birth of Jesus, along with his signs, wonders, and miracles, are first-order doctrines. Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and imminent return are first-order doctrines and must be affirmed by the professing Christian. All those things are in the Apostles' Creed, which you may have said if you grew up in the church. So to break the passage down, in verses 1 through 4, we see the centrality of the resurrection. The centrality of the resurrection. In verses 5 through 8, we see the confirmation of the resurrection. Confirmation. And then in verses 9 through 11, we see the consequence of the resurrection. Centrality, confirmation, consequence. And the central idea is this. The reality of Jesus Christ demands a response. The reality of Jesus Christ demands a response. We cannot be neutral. And like the song lyric says, if you choose not to decide, you've made a choice. So I recently heard this story from a pastor friend of mine. There was once an art exhibit in a famous museum which featured many of the classics from different time periods. There were people like Michelangelo, Rembrandt, Monet, Van Gogh, classic works. Now one man attended the exhibit and feeling a little out of his element, got just a bit defensive. Maybe he was intimidated by the giftedness of the artists. But anyway, he went to the host and said with an air of disdain, I'm not that impressed. And the host said to the man, sir, I should respectfully remind you that history has judged these pictures you've seen as masterpieces. They are no longer on trial. The people looking at them are. And I say this to illustrate a point. Jesus was on trial when he affirmed his identity to Caiaphas as the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. But understand, Jesus is no longer on trial. We are. Jesus accomplished his mission, rose from the dead, and as Mark writes, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. We are on trial before him. And if we've trusted in his atoning work, we are saved by grace through faith. Acts 17, verse 31 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So as Corey might say, verse 3 grabs our attention. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul is bringing this church right down to basics. Now, the very name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. The angel had told Joseph, she, meaning Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Sin is the great equalizer. Paul tells us in Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. 
And in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Genesis 3 details the fall of man. And when Adam and Eve succumbed to the serpent's temptation and took humanity and the whole created order down with them, sin became embedded in our genetic code. And this disconnects us from God. God cannot coexist with sin. Left to ourselves, you and I had no rights where God was concerned. And we deserve eternal judgment. Now, we may take full ownership of the fact that we're sinners. We may even agree that our sin deserves holy judgment. But where many people get tripped up is in believing they can address their sin on their own. And we see this in the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam and Eve's eyes were open, they tried covering themselves with the fig leaves they've sewn together. And after God pronounced the punishments, we see in Genesis 3, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So we see two things here. We see that for sin, had to, for sin to be covered, something had to die. And secondly, the provision had to come from God. A few verses earlier, in Genesis 3, verse 15, God made, no, made known that future provision, a Savior who would be our sin-bearer. God eventually formalized the sacrificial system. Every true Old Testament sacrifice anticipated the future Savior's redemptive work. In the Old Testament, there are over 100 prophecies about what the future Messiah would do. There's Psalm 22, Psalm 69, from which Jesus quoted while on the cross. Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before Christ, is a very detailed prophecy. When Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, he said to them, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. A great many people avoid the Old Testament because they don't think it's relevant. But not only are the books not only, not only are they the books Jesus and the apostles read and studied, but their many fulfilled prophecies inspire confidence that God has the world in his hands. Now, I've spent some time here because there's a great deal of misconception about who Jesus is and what he came to do. In 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, the apostle writes, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus did not come to this earth to be a moral teacher or to give us a gentle religious way of life. And I'm going to say this gently, no matter what side of the fence we're on, Jesus is not a mascot for our pet causes, be they social or political. The unjust system Jesus suffered under was divinely, sovereignly orchestrated. Jesus was not a victim. And he was not providing a model for, of self-sacrifice so that we can atone for our own sins. No, Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. What was lost? You and I were. We were on our way to hell. Paul writes to the Ephesians, we were dead in our transgressions. We were not confused. We were not ignorant. We were not misinformed. We were dead. And we needed to be brought to life. We needed a waymaker. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin creates a chasm between us and God that cannot be bridged by any level of performance or by any number of good works. It is said that the most devout prayer offered by the humblest saint 
contains enough sin to send him to hell. But Jesus, having been born untainted by sin and having lived a perfect life, could and did absorb the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. And by his shed blood, we are made acceptable in God's sight. We are not just nicer, more religious versions of our old selves. We are new creations. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And Peter's sermon in, at Pentecost brings this home. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 16 about how the Holy One, the Messiah, will not see decay. So the veracity of the scriptures depends on the truth of the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The deity of Christ hinges on the truth of the resurrection. Listen to Romans 4 verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Friends, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, you and I aren't justified before God. The salvation of our souls hinges on the truth of the resurrection. And finally, consider these words from John 14 in the upper room. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That is our blessed hope. Jesus is preparing a place for you. You can put your name in that blank. Jesus made you. He loves you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he's preparing a place for you. We're not talking about a room at the Motel 6. He's not going to say, this is your dwelling place for eternity. You got color TV, high-speed internet, hope you enjoy it. No, Jesus has the building blocks of the universe at his disposal. And if he can create the universe in six days, imagine what he can do in 2,000 years. But his ability to fulfill that incredible promise hinges on the reality of the resur resurrection. That's a little hard to pull off if you're still dead, dead and in the tomb. Jesus said later in John 14, because I live, you also will live. And this is our hope of eternal life. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5, the apostle John says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write these words down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And this is our future, because Jesus made a way. Because he was resurrected, we will be too. And that reality demands a response. So Paul continues in, ver in verse 5 by naming some of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And this too requires some background. It can't be stressed enough. Jesus died on Friday, and for a few agonizing hours, as far as anyone knew, that was it. 
To his faithful followers, it seemed that the cause had failed. The kingdom would not be restored to Israel, as was desperately hoped. It would be business as usual under the oppressive power of Rome. And to the religious establishment, one more starry-eyed would-be Messiah had been done away with. This itinerant preacher who dared to call himself the Son of God was safely in the grave. It seemed that Satan had won. And yet, to the religious leaders, there seemed to be some unfinished business, which we read about at the end of Matthew chapter 27. These men were unable to get out of their minds what Jesus had said about rising again. They thought, we know that's not going to happen because it can't happen, but just in case it does, that's what was on their minds when they went to Pilate and requested extra security detail for the tomb. They were afraid the disciples would steal the body and start the rumor of a resurrection, so they would leave nothing to chance. And as much as Pilate hated to agree with the Jews about anything, he had had more than enough trouble for one weekend. So a Roman seal was placed over the tomb, a heavy stone was rolled across it, and the guard was posted. All bases were covered. Until Jesus trumped the devil's ace and walked out of that tomb. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and to the other Mary, who in turn told the disciples. But before this, the angel came and rolled away the stones, scaring the soldiers to death. When the soldiers collected themselves, they went into the city and reported to the chief priest what had happened. Now, true to form, rather than investigate the story, the chief priests bribed the soldiers to claim that while they were asleep, the disciples came during the night and snatched the body away. Now, the guards might have said, wait a minute, if we say that we were sleeping on duty, we're as good as dead. But the priest said, don't worry, if this gets back to Pilate, we've got your back, you just take the money and do what we tell you. It's like one of those proverbial smoke-filled backroom deals in politics. And Matthew 28, verse 15 says, this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. And that plan was a shaky one. It had holes the size of a Mack truck it would have us believe that 16 soldiers charged with guarding the body of Jesus would fall asleep on duty. And assuming they did, how would they know what would happen if they were asleep? And that the disciples came out of hiding, got in there like a bunch of Navy SEALs, and stole the mangled body of Jesus. Listen, in the aftermath of the crucifixion, these disciples were cowering behind closed doors, scared to death. And as for the guards... In ancient Rome, there was a fine line between being a loyal soldier and a gangster. Point being, these guys were not people to mess with. But Jesus walked out of that tomb, and we read that he appeared to Peter, who probably needed personal time after having denied Jesus three times. He appeared to the Twelve. They were 11 by then, but they were still known as the Twelve. And on one occasion, Jesus invited the skeptical Thomas to come close and see the scars in his hands. And that reassures me greatly to know that our Lord can handle our doubts and questions. And Jesus appeared at one time to more than 500 believers. So with all this eyewitness testimony of resurrection from people who could easily corroborate each other's accounts, why all the attempts to cover it up? The resurrection accounts have been relentlessly attacked. Those who deny it can be classified as part of another group that wants to have the majority opinion. We say Jesus rose from the dead. They say, not true. 
And we dare not underestimate the enemy's power. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Those who stubbornly reject the biblical account of the resurrection are in bondage, and it takes a sovereign work of God to open their eyes. So here are some lies of the devil. Some believe in the swoon theory, which holds that Jesus didn't really die, that he swooned and then revived in the coolness of the tomb. So this asks us to believe that after surviving a beating, a flogging, a crucifixion, and a spear wound, he got up and rolled away the stone himself and got past the guards. Some believe that all who saw Jesus post-resurrection, the women, the disciples, and the 500 other witnesses, all had a collective hallucination. Others believe that the women and the disciples went to the wrong tomb. The only problem with that is that according to Luke chapter 23, verse 55, the women saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid in it. And the guards certainly knew the right tomb. Their lives depended on it. If ever there was a corpse the enemies of Jesus needed in order to quell the rumors, it was his. And now we have modern-day teachers of religion saying this resurrection business is all either allegorical or just a legend. And I want to be clear, I am not here to throw flaming arrows at anyone or to personally attack anyone. But any idea proclaimed in public is fair game for criticism. In 2019, a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnist by the name of Nicholas Kristof interviewed the president of the Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And here's a sample of what this religion professor had to say. She says, crucifixion is not something God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive Godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God can forgive people is nuts. Elsewhere, she says this, for me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than death. There's, that's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later, he wasn't there. For Christians, for whom the physical resurrection becomes an obsession, that seems to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow somebody found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that mean that Christianity was a lie? No, our faith is stronger than that. This was on the first page of Google. I did not have to dig for that. But this is a seminary president who in other places has said that the virgin birth is a bizarre claim that has nothing to do with the message of Jesus and that no reasonable person could believe the literal interpretation of the scripture. She claims that the gospel accounts of the resurrection weren't written until the second or third century AD. Now, if you buy into this, you must explain why the disciples and early followers of Christ died violent deaths for a legend that hadn't even developed. Look, people will die for what they believe is the truth. We see that all the time today. But no one dies for what they know to be a lie. In my unregenerate right life, I was a pretty convincing liar, but I lied to get myself out of trouble. I wasn't about to lie to get myself in trouble. And the original disciples were crucified, burned at the stake, stoned, run through with swords because they preached that Jesus is alive. Peter said in Acts chapter 4 verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
Now, Charles Colson was a famous Watergate accomplice in the 1970s, and he said this, Watergate involved 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me the 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. People might say, I don't have enough faith to believe God could raise a person from the dead. As for me, I don't have enough faith to believe in the alternative theories. But again, the one story the enemy doesn't want people believing is that Jesus is alive, and he will do anything and everything to make that truth sound implausible. Now, with all due respect to the professor who asked, what if tomorrow someone found the dead body of Jesus still in the tomb? Well, Paul answered that question later in the chapter, saying, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's right. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are all wasting our time here. What if tomorrow someone found the dead body of Jesus still in the tomb? I'm sorry, but that's a moot question because it isn't going to happen. Jesus was either raised or he was not. Christianity is either true or it isn't. And thanks to social media, it's very easy for alternative theories to make their way into the public. And the most helpful advice I can give is in Acts 17, verse 11, which says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Friends, if the words of the Apostle Paul were to be held to that level of scrutiny, how much truer is that of the people you and I sit under every day? And that absolutely includes me and Corey and Bob and the elders of this church. Everything you hear from this pulpit, every professor you sit under, every social media theologian you listen to should be tested against the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said that discernment is more than knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. The reality of Jesus Christ demands a response. Based on the evidence, what will yours be? So we've looked at the centrality of the resurrection and the confirmation of the resurrection. But the consequence of the resurrection is where the rubber meets the road. Having the facts and knowing the information is one thing, but it must be acted on in order to be effective. Now, when I give my testimony, I tell people that if I had died before I was converted at age 25, I would have missed heaven by 18 inches, that being the difference between my head and my heart. In my unregenerate life, I could have given you the facts of the gospel, but that is not enough. The difference is in knowing that if you had been the only person on earth in need of redemption, Jesus would have died for you. Regeneration comes from repentance and belief. Right before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's John eleven twenty five. So what are we to make of that? Is this just hallmark sentimentality? Are we supposed to read this and think, wow, that Jesus can sure turn a phrase? Is this religious hyperbole? Or do we dare believe that it's the truth? I mean, are we to put our hope and trust in a Savior who is less than truthful? 
You know, I had the privilege of teaching a Growing in Grace class through the entire book of Revelation. Some of you were there. And I said to them on the first day, we just can't make the scriptures mean what we want them to. Because then what you think it says is the authority. What everyone thinks it says, it means. Therefore, it doesn't mean anything since everyone thinks it means something different. There are no rules to that game, and it makes for a theology built on sand. Jesus asks Martha, as he asks every one of us, do you believe he is who we claim to be? And if so, what does this imply about the choices we make and whom we follow? The apostles all believed it. At the beginning of the book of Acts, their little group of 120 grew to 6 million over the next 300 years, and 50 years after that encompassed half of the Roman Empire. The truth of the resurrection enabled them to take the gospel into the military power of Rome, the intellectualism of Greek culture, and the stubborn religious bigotry of the Jewish establishment. Paul states in verse 10 that God's grace was not without effect. And his life was a case in point. Paul briefly alludes to his past here, but we know from other places that he was a religious extremist bent on ridding the earth of Christians. He described himself as a violent man, a persecutor, and a blasphemer. Now, God, in his sovereignty, had set Paul apart from birth. But Paul had in no way set out to become a Christian missionary. Jesus had to intersect him on the Damascus Road and give him his life's purpose after which he identified himself as the least of the apostles, less than the least of all God's people. Later he wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Point being, the better Paul came to know the Lord, the lower he became in his own estimation. He didn't even consider himself worthy to be called an apostle. He said, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul didn't care who was doing the preaching so long as the gospel was being preached and people were being saved. And I loved what John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Newton took those words from the Apostle Paul. He wrote Amazing Grace, and like the song says, he was a pretty wretched man. Now, I want to challenge you with this. Where, where in your life can you say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am? Is that something you can reflect on frequently? The scriptures to which Paul referred foretold the death and resurrection of the Messiah, but they also warned of what happened when God's people forgot to whom they belonged. And that forgetful tendency is in us too. What does Corey always say before we take communion? Examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, I feel that when we do baptisms here at Grace City, attendance should be a priority for us. Hearing those testimonies is a great reminder of what a person's first love in Christ looks like. Every church should have a large group of first-generation believers whose experience of coming to faith is still fresh. Those stories inspire me greatly. Examining ourselves is critical. And going back to verse 2, Paul says, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you've believed in vain. It's very possible to hear and to know the word and yet not submit to it. The grace of God cannot be without effect in us. 
Something happens in the 11th chapter of John's gospel that we need to let be a stark warning. Weeks before Jesus went to the cross, he performed his most spectacular public miracle, the raising of Lazarus. If anything should have convinced people that Jesus was the Messiah, it was this. A man four days dead had been brought back to life and given back to his grieving family. And the reality of that miracle demanded a response. And the response of the religious establishment was to put Jesus to death. The events and details of Jesus' execution were horrific, especially considering his innocence. Most people would look at that and think, I would never in a million years take part in something as gruesome and as cruel as that. But if we have the information about Jesus and yet don't submit to him as Lord and Savior, then according to the writer of Hebrews, we are crucifying the Son of God afresh and submitting him to open shame. To refuse to surrender to the Lordship and the saving power of Jesus is to stand with the crucifiers. The comprehensive reality of Jesus Christ cannot be of no consequence to us. And I'm going to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis that sums up this well. If Christianity is false, it is of no importance. If Christianity is true, it is of infinite importance. But the one thing Christianity can never be is of moderate importance. The Apostle Paul would agree. There are eternal ramifications here. And if you have questions or concerns, we have people on hand who can talk to you and pray with you. But I would urge you not to leave this place without settling that issue in your heart and your mind. The reality of your waymaker, Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection demands a response. Let's pray. God, thank you for your resurrection and for your promise that in you we have life. And pray that we can take hold of that confidently and be ambassadors of that message to the people in our in our wake. Thank you for this day and for the cooperation of technology and for the work that you've done in this church over the past 13 months of this pandemic. I pray that you would bring us together again as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God praise. Let's take time to worship. Hallelujah.
say that was a lot <laughs> but I just want to give you one line and here it is you are worth dying for God of the universe says you are worth dying for take that in and, and, and John did a wonderful job but let me give it to you like the songwriter said. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debts he paid. From the cross to the grave, to the grave to the scribe. Hey, y'all, that's why we lift our name on high. Hallelujah. Listen, listen, listen. I don't want you to leave here today failing to understand out of all that was said, the same power that conquers the grave lives in you and lives in me. This has been a hard year. And if we can testify this morning and not get cute because we're not on camera, 
Some of us almost gave up. Come, come on, come on, come on, come on. Anybody, am I the only one? Am I the only one? Come on, come on, come on. Don't let me, don't leave me out here by myself. I, 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 it got hard this year. Amen. But guess what? You made it. You survived it. And God is still writing his story. Not just for you, but for Great City Church. That's worth giving God a praise right there. So I get a very moment today to pray. I just want to spend some time in prayer. And I just want you to throw in the atmosphere your greatest, just throw in the atmosphere someone's name. Maybe it's your name. Oh, I, I oh, maybe that. Oh, thank you, Lord. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit ready to wash us today. Come on, hallelujah. Let the wind blow. That's what happened in Acts chapter, in chapter 2. You could, yeah, I, I'm trying to. So let's just throw it out there. Throw it out there today as a community. We're not online. 